Let's pray together. Uh, <laughs> Father, we love you. Uh, we pray that as we start a new book, a new series that we will be in for a while, that we will gaze at your son and upon gazing at him, love him and have our lives changed by him. We pray that every passage from this book that we preach yields the fruit of new life brought about by your spirit, that you would be glorified in us. We would delight in you and know your son, not our image of him, not a tolerable version of him that we've made up in our own minds, but him, who he really is right now, seated at your right hand. We pray that your word would do that in our hearts and that we would worship him for all that he is worth. We pray that in his name, amen. We finished, amen, we finished uh, 1 Corinthians 16 last week to the roaring cheers, louder than the cheers that Bryce just received. We had been in it for a little over a year, and today we're starting a new book, a new series, The Gospel of Matthew that we'll be in for a little bit as well. So I want to do two things. I want to introduce the gospel a little bit for us this morning, and then we'll actually get into those lists of names. I think we have like 20-something short biographies, so we'll get out of here at like three-ish. Uh, deacons will bring in, you know, we'll have communion and then lunch entrees. Uh, so the gospel of Matthew, God in his infinite wisdom, that was a joke. If you're new, calm down. Uh, the, uh, God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to give us in his word four gospels, four narratives of the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection and ascension of his son for uh, gospels that are not contradictory accounts, as if four fiction writers were trying to guess at the same legend, but rather four portraits of the one Jesus, of the one son of God. We have one written by maybe Jesus' closest disciple, at least this disciple thinks so, the one whom Jesus loves. We have the gospel of John from John. We have one written by a later disciple that maybe followed Jesus on the fringes, but interviewed Peter and wrote down Peter's memoirs, if you will. It's the gospel of Mark. We have a Christian doctor who later followed Paul, who went around interviewing people, interviewed Mary most likely, and wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And then here we have the book that we will be in, the gospel of Matthew, written by the tax collector, one of the 12 Matthew. And so each uh, portrait of Jesus, the gospel writers aren't just sitting down and writing anything they can remember. They're not just scribbling down, okay, he said this that one time, I think, and, you know, just write down whatever they can remember. If that was true, they did a really bad job of comparing and making sure they're on the same page. They knew each other. They could have said, you know, let's look and compare and make sure we've got all the details right. Each one of them has a specific purpose behind the portrait that they're painting of Jesus. For instance, John wants to show Jesus as the eternal God. He starts in eternity past. How does John start? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He starts back there versus uh, Mark, starts off right at John the Baptist, and then quickly moves on. It's a very fast-paced gospel. Each one of them has a purpose behind the portrait that they're painting. So what is Matthew's purpose? What portrait does he want to paint? And what we will see, quite simply, is that Matthew wants to show very, very clearly that Jesus 
is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. All the hopes, all the dreams, all the longings of the Old Testament are found in this man. He's the connection between the old and the new. Every hope being lobbed forward in the Old Testament lands on Jesus. That is Matthew's great display that he wants to show. Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We'll see that today. He's the ultimate teacher of the law. This law that's the core of the people of Israel, Jesus comes as the ultimate teacher of the law. We'll see things in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus will say, you have heard it said, blah, 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 do not murder the law. But I say, don't have anger in your heart. You see that. He's not changing the law, but rather showing the fullest sense of the law. Notice, does God just want you not to murder each other? I mean, kind of, yes, is part of that answer before you were like, hang on, I didn't know this was allowed. Yes, he does not want you to murder each other. Is that all he wants? That's all the law says. Don't murder, don't steal. And Jesus shows up and says, yes, of course, we, want, we have these rules, this perfect law, but that is not all your God cares about. Your God cares about the heart that hates before it murders. So yes, don't murder but let me give you the fullest teaching of why you shouldn't murder because the heart should not hate. It should not grow bitter. It should not grow resentful. You see that. He becomes the true teacher of the law. He becomes the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the ultimate uh, sacrificial lamb, the ultimate prophet. Everything that was so core to the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. B.B. Warfield, the uh, great Princeton professor, gives this analogy that I think is helpful. He says, the Old Testament is like a room filled with treasures. It's well furnished and filled with treasures, but it's very dimly lit. So you can look in there, but it's hard to see. There's treasure in here. And when the lights go on, nothing in the room changes. You can just see it clearer. And Matthew, in a sense, is turning the lights on of the Old Testament and saying, all this treasure is found in him. He is the treasure of the Old Testament that we once saw dimly, but now the lights are on and we see that it is him. An example would be something we'll see next week. Matthew 1, through 23, Mary is coming and told of the, the virgin birth that will take place. She will give birth to Jesus. And we see this, this is Matthew speaking. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's a prophecy from Isaiah. When Isaiah says it, it's in the dim room, dimly lit. We see this promise. Eyes are dimly lit, and Matthew is saying, boom, Jesus. That treasure that you can dimly see, the lights are on now, that is Jesus. That's Matthew's heart. That's the purpose of his portrait. All the hopes, all the longings of the Old Testament are found in him. Uh, years ago, my wife and I did a Bible school together. That's where we met. Uh, and what we would do is go through every book of the Bible. I think it was around 12 times. So we were working our way through over nine months. And so we started in Philemon because they wanted to start us off easy. So we were like, okay, one page, we can handle that. Then we worked through the New Testament and then we worked through all of the Old Testament, which was about six months. And we saved one book for last. The last book that we studied before the school was over was Matthew purposefully because after spending six months in the Old Testament, you get the book that says, here's what you've been waiting for. That's Matthew. 
That's what we have the opportunity to sit in. The longings of the universe are found in this man, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Matthew's heart. We'll see that time and time again. That's the portrait that Matthew is painting. And so my prayer for us as a people, as a group, as a, as a local church, as we get to sit under this book for an extended season are really two things. Number one, that we would love and obey all that he has commanded. We'll see at the end of this book, Jesus, after he is raised from the dead, before he is about to send to the, fa- to the Father's right hand, gives this great commission. All the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, disciples, and make disciples of all nations doing two things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So as we get to see several commands of our King, my hope is that we would be a people in a postmodern world that's drifting away from truth altogether or where truth is what bubbles up from inside of our hearts, that we would be a people who sees that truth comes from our God, comes from outside of us to us, and that we would see the care and the love behind each command. That we would banish the thought that Jesus isn't a cold taskmaster dishing out rules for fun, but rather a gentle and lowly savior who wants rest for his people, who wants joy for his people, and every command is coming from a loving divine hand, and that we would be a people who know, deeply know, the joy of obedience. When God tells Adam and Eve in paradise, before sin has entered the world, don't touch this tree, is he just being a stodgy disciplinarian? I just want to give a rule because I'm just that much no fun. No. What is he doing? He's giving them an opportunity to love him, to obey him, to know the joy of trusting someone infinitely good. And it's when they doubt that, it's when they begin to believe, I don't think this command has come from a loving hand. That is when sin, suffering, and misery enters into their reality. It's when they turn from him to themselves and assume, you know what, only a you know, killjoy would give such rules. Then death enters in when they make that wrong assumption. May that not have any place here as we see the joyous commands of our Savior. That's my first prayer for us. And the second is that we would see the true Jesus who is in a day where, especially in the church, you hear things like, my Jesus would never. I can't believe in a Jesus who would do that. Jesus is all about this, and it's typically the thing that that person is all about. When Jesus is a lump of clay that people just want to mold in their own image and pretend that it's actually Jesus, that we would be a people as we look at Matthew, have the opportunity to gaze at the Jesus who is, who's the living God, seated at the right hand of the Father, watching over this service right now, the real Jesus who is, and know him and love him. Loving an image of him that is a product of your own mind is not the same as loving the Jesus who is. Uh, There are 12 they're between 12,000 and 13,000 children at Parkway. Uh, I have two of those, okay? So imagine at the end of this service, 
I took a drink and you're like, imagine what? He paused. Imagine I just go grab a two-year-old who's blonde because I have a two-year-old who's blonde and I start to leave. And that parent, because it's not my kid, that parent says, whoa, 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 what are you doing, Jared? And I say, oh, this is, you know, I'm just taking my kid home. And like, uh, that's my kid, not your kid. Like, no, my kid is two and blonde. You would probably say, kids aren't a generic category of two-ness and blondness. Your son is a person and he's over there. My son is a person and he's in your arms and I'm about to assault you, right? In the same way, Jesus is not just a generic ball of love and gentleness floating in the sky. He's a living God. He's a person watching over us again right now. You do not have the option of creating a Jesus in your own image and calling him Jesus. C.S. Lewis years ago wrote to a friend who, who thought Jesus, he's a good teacher, but let's not get into all this, you know, son of God stuff. Can I just like his teachings? He's a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis wrote him this letter telling him that's not an option. He says this, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us. As Tim Keller would say, crown him or kill him, you cannot just like him. Adore him for who he is or reject him, but don't you dare try to mold him into whatever image you like. That is not one of your options with the living God. My hope is that we would see him for who he is, and if he is who he says he is, let me encourage you, he is infinitely better than any cheap thing you can produce with your own mind. If he is who he says he is, the God of all joy, the God of all comforts, the God of all love, he will make whatever clay molding of him you have made laughable. So my prayer is that by his spirit, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened as Paul prays in Ephesians 1 to see who he is and his infinite beauty, that we would be like Robert Murray McChain, this, this prayer for his people. He, Jesus, is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye, settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. My greatest prayer for us is that through this book, every single week, all the false images of him that are tarnishing his beauty would fade away and we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. We would see who he is and worship him as our king. So if you don't mind, I would like to pray one more time over this book before we actually dive into Bryce's genealogy. So let me pray again just over our time. Father, I just pray for that. That is something that we can't conjure up. Give, get the greatest preacher in the world, the best he can do is motivate and that will fade by lunch. Your spirit changes hearts and we want to see your son. 
We want to see our Lord where our sinful hearts butt up against his commands. We want our hearts to repent and know the joy of being conformed into the image of your son. Display him today, next week, and every time we gather to open your word that we might love him and be conformed into his image and changed forever. Please do that, Father. You're the only one who can, and we pray it in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so turn. You can now open Matthew. The preface is done. Matthew 1, we're not going to preach through this normally. Uh, if you're new here, the way we preach through text is we just typically go line by line, say the meaning of the text, and then uh, exhort the truth of it because of the nature of this genealogy. This will be one of the unique sermons where we don't go through every name so that we're not here until 3. We'll kind of jump around, but we will still see the glory of this. So you open your book, you open to Matthew, you're like, yes, we're out of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said bye to all of his friends, Matthew, and you're like, genealogy, and you're like, oh. it's like when you get through Leviticus and your Bible reading plans, and you're like, I made it, and you open numbers, and it's like, count these people for 10 chapters, and you're like, okay, Psalms, I'm in Psalms for the rest of the year. Uh, so we're in this genealogy, why would Matthew, again, he wants to paint this portrait of Jesus, why is he putting this genealogy at the beginning. What's the purpose of his genealogy? Something that's, that's really difficult for us when we see texts like this, because there's genealogies all throughout the Bible, is the purpose of genealogies is not dating. It's not timeline, mainly. You and I live uh, post 20th century. There was a, a, a big controversy with liberal theology where liberal theology came in and kind of denied all the miracles of the scriptures and took out everything that wasn't just kind of a moral teaching. And the reaction to that, the kind of conservative reaction to that from uh, fundamentalists was to defend the Bible, which is a good thing, uh, with a strict, strict literalism, which is not always a good thing because not always the purpose of writing. And so genealogies in particular, it was an easy thing for liberals to look at and be like, look, that guy's not that guy's dad. We know because look at first Kings. The Bible's, you know, Eris, erroneous. How do you say Eris? Is that a word? We'll edit this in the, in the video for the people watching. The Bible has errors in it. There you go. Uh, and so we freak out typically because if you read the Gospel of Luke, he has a genealogy too, and it's not the exact same as Matthew's. Oh my gosh, what were they doing? Couldn't they just compare notes so that we weren't freaking out? The reason why we freak out is because we don't know the purpose of genealogies in the scriptures. Almost always it was written, especially in Jesus' day, to be almost like a resume, to show a person's pedigree. That is Matthew's purpose, to establish a person's heritage, a person's inheritance, uh, legitimacy, their rights, their reputation. There was a sense in which uh, your family's honor was your honor, and your family's shame was your shame. It acted like a resume. And so here, Matthew, right before his gospel account, is putting on top of the bio, if you will, Jesus's resume. That's his very, very clear purpose. We even see that in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what is Matthew doing? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes. So the resume on the front, we see that in verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We're getting an insight into why he's putting this here. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
Christ is a title, the anointed one, the Messiah, the deliverer, the promised one is that idea. Jesus Christ, we lump those two together. So Matthew is saying here is the resume of the one. Again, remember his purpose. I'm about to show how all the Old Testament points to Jesus, and here's the resume to prove it. He is the Christ. He's the son of David, the promised son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. So it functions, again, as a resume. So as we look at this, Matthew is primarily going to show us two things with this resume, who the Messiah will be and who the Messiah will save. Who the Messiah will be and who the Messiah will save. So let's look at that first one, who the Messiah will be. The two biggest names Matthew is highlighting are who? Abraham and David. Shouldn't do crowd participation. You guys are like, I'm taking notes. I don't have time to participate. Uh, Abraham and David, we see are the biggest two. He says it in the first sentence. He's going to highlight it in the middle, and then he's going to say it again at the end. Verse 1, the book of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and then skip down. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. David, the king. So let's look at Abraham first. Again, remember Matthew's purpose, all the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Abraham, immediately after the fall in Genesis 3, immediately after sin enters into the world, God promises, kind of as he's announcing what the sin is doing, breaking his perfect creation, promises one day one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. There's this promise of redemption right after the fall happens, and then that lingers kind of in the air for a couple chapters. Sin has entered the world. It's breaking apart God's perfect creation, but there's this promise of one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, and that lingers in the air until we see God call Abraham or Abram. So God calls Abram, this kind of random guy walking around with his dad and grandpa in Ur, shows up to him, not because he's righteous, just because he is choosing to show up to him and calls him and covenants with him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. Notice that. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those, or those who dishonor you, I will curse. And notice this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so that's the covenant. Go, you're going to be my guy, and through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see it repeated again in Genesis 22:18. And in your offspring, someone's going to come from you. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So this promise of God of redemption is specified now. It's going to come through Abraham's family. Somehow, all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations are going to be blessed through his family. Or to say it another way, Someone is going to come from Abraham who is going to bless the whole world with God's blessing. Okay, that's the Abrahamic covenant that is the core of Israel's history from their very beginning as Abraham is their patriarch. And so Matthew here is highlighting Abraham is Jesus's great, 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 etc. grandfather. Jesus from the line of Abraham. Interesting. Hold that thought. 
next, David. Who else is his great, great, great grandfather? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, skip down. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we have the Abrahamic promise. Now let's look at David's great covenant, David's promise. So David is the ultimate king. He's the ultimate warrior king. He defeats all of the enemies of God. God gives him victory over and over and over again, but he's also the harp player. He's the psalmist, right? He's this picture of military might, destroying, wiping out the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, and also the picture of intimacy with God. You see both of that in him. He's the man after God's own heart. And there's this scene towards the end of his life where David's sitting in his palace and realizing that God's presence is dwelling in the tabernacle, a tent. And David has this thought of, why do I get to stay in this nice palace and God is in a tent? I want to build a temple for God, has this idea of building a temple. And God comes to him and says, you want to build me a house? Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build you a house, a lineage. And says this in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. This is the Davidic covenant. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." Okay, so not just prosperity, huge promises. Someone is going to come from you. One of your sons will be made king and he will reign forever. After you die, apparently this son isn't gonna die. He's gonna reign forever. His throne will be before me. I will establish him. He will reign forever. So you see these two promises and how they might start to line up. Someone is going to come from Abraham who's going to bless the whole world and someone is going to come from David who is going to reign forever. Might those be the same person? Might the way that someone from Abraham blesses the whole world be through a perfect kingdom of peace and righteousness? So you see how throughout the Old Testament, these promises might line up and begin to build on one another. And we see specifically with this promised king, this expectation just begins to grow and grow and grow. We see in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. And the throne of David, here's the promise, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see the promise increasing. Now he's the wise counselor, the everlasting God, the prince of peace is going to reign forever. Again, Isaiah 11, a much bigger uh, uh, promise of this promised king of David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's dad, Jesse. So again, Davidic promise, David's promise here. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity 
for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain." For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all peoples, and of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You see how that has expanded a bit from a king will reign forever. Now, all of a sudden, the king will reign forever. He'll destroy all of God's enemies. He will reign in perfect justice and righteousness. He'll bring redemption and peace, not just to his people, apparently to the whole world. You know, leopards and lambs are playing together and kids are like playing with snakes and it's all okay because there's no more chaos. There's no more uh, sin, anything like that. And the earth is filled with the knowledge of God and this king, whoever this king will be, will stand as a signal. All the nations will come in and inquire about him. Who is this great king, that we might be his people as well. You see how the promise begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. And Matthew here is saying, first of all, notice David just isn't Jesus's ancestor. Jesus is in the direct line of the kings. To say it this way, if the monarchy, if the, uh, Judah's monarchy had never fallen, if Babylon had never come and wiped them out, Jesus would have reigned on the throne As king, he has every legal right to the king. But what is Matthew ultimately showing? He is, this Jesus is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The two great promises of the Old Testament that one would come from Abraham that would bless the whole world and one would come from David that would reign forever and bring perfect peace to the world and put away all that is bad and the the knowledge of God would be filled in the whole world. All those promises, both of those are answered in him. That someone is Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. Jesus is the Messiah. You see that in the resume. Who is this guy? Who is this carpenter that's going to be a nobody who didn't go to any fancy schools? He was born in a manger. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. The longings of the universe, everything that we have been waiting for, are satisfied, are answered in him. That's the first thing we see in this list of names. He is the Messiah. Now, There would have been a huge, there was a huge, huge expectation for the Messiah. Everybody that Jesus encounters knows their Old Testament, probably better than us, probably better than all of us. There is this expectation. They know the promises. They're waiting for this Messiah and remember their circumstances. Are they reigning like David? No, they're under the oppression of Rome. Imagine which I think you can, because we were told to wear masks for like a couple months, and you guys were thumbing through your Bibles for justification to rebel against the government. Uh, You can look this up, but Roman oppression was a bit worse. I know that's hard to fathom. Um, Imagine 
under oppression and you've got a promise that one day your people will reign over the whole world through this one man. There is this huge expectation and huge longing. One day, these oppressive leaders will be put away by our true leader. And then Jesus shows up. Notice the reception by almost everybody is excited. Why? This guy's multiplying food. That's pretty beneficial for, you know, an army. He's healing the sick, fairly beneficial. And he's raising the dead. I think this guy would be a really good military leader. I like our chances when we go to war. There's this excitement. Why do you think Jesus is telling, or that is why Jesus is saying, when people identify him as the Messiah, don't tell anybody. Go away quietly because he knows they have this great expectation and it's the wrong expectation. Notice we will see the most upset people get is when they identify Jesus as the Messiah and he doesn't meet what they've molded the Messiah into. It's when they don't meet, he doesn't meet their expectations that fury pops in. The problem isn't that they weren't looking for a Messiah. The problem is when the Messiah shows up, he's radically different than they expect. And so that brings us to the second thing. This genealogy is going to show us who the Messiah will be and who the Messiah will save. Who the Messiah will save. Again, this genealogy is Jesus' resume. You would think the best and the brightest will be on there. And thus far, they are. Abraham, David, that's expected. This great king of Israel, that's expected for the resume. Look who else Jesus, or not Jesus, Matthew puts in Jesus's resume. Let's look at five people, four women and another king besides David. Let's look at the first four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife doesn't even say her name. So first of all, in, a, in the first century context, in a patriarchal society, to put women in general would have tarnished the reputation. That would have been almost unheard of. You would at least expect, Matthew, to put the matriarchs of Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, but who does he choose to include? He chooses, first of all, four Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles do not deal with each other in Jesus' day. He puts in four Gentiles. If you're going to include anybody, again, you certainly wouldn't include non-Jewish women as you're trying to show the purebred Jewish Messiah. And then look at all four. They all have, let's just say, sketchy reputations. Tamar, verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. If you've ever read Genesis 38 you will see the story of Tamar, who is Judah's daughter-in-law, who dresses up as a prostitute so that she would sleep with him, and she becomes pregnant and gives birth to these twins. So this line in the genealogy is a result of incest and prostitution. And notice, Matthew could have just said, like he says in tons of other places, Judah the father of Perez, and then moved on. He intentionally includes by Tamar, almost if he's emphasizing it. What is he doing? Next, Rahab, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab, who we, is a good guy in the story of Joshua. She hides the spies, but what's her profession? She's a prostitute, maybe even the head of a, a brothel in the ancient world or something like that. Again, not something you put on your resume, even if she does good things. Ruth, you think, what's wrong with Ruth? We get a whole book. She's sweet. Ruth is a Moabite. 
And if you've read Genesis 19, you know where the Moabites come from. Lot is in a cave with his two daughters. The two daughters get Lot, Lot drunk, take turns sleeping with him. One of them becomes pregnant, gives birth to Moab, a people that are a result, are a result of incest, not something you put on your resume. What in the world is Matthew doing? And then lastly, Uriah's wife, verse 6. Jesse, the father of David, the king. We expect David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. He could have stopped there. He doesn't. By the wife of Uriah. We all know the story. Well, maybe you don't. There's the story of David, this, again, the king of kings in, in, in Israel's mind, this great psalmist should be at war with his people. He's not. He goes out on the balcony of his palace, sees a woman bathing on her roof. Apparently that was normal. Uh, tells his servants, go get her. Sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He recalls Uriah from war. Uriah was at war. Uriah, by the way, one of his mighty men would have been in his inner circle, would have been a friend and says to cover up his sin, Uriah, go sleep with your wife. Uriah refuses, and David has his friend, mighty man Uriah, murdered. Why in the world is Matthew including this? Adultery and murder. He's not only including it, he's emphasizing it. Hold that thought. One more. Said four women and a king. There's one king that he chooses to include that is quite baffling, and that is Manasseh. Verse 10, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. If you read Kings and Chronicles, you will see that uh, he does, Matthew does not include all the kings. He sometimes skips grandpa to grandson. He'll skip over. So if you're going to do that, why not skip over the worst king in Judah's history? Manasseh, during his reign, his, the paragraph describing his reign in 2 Kings is almost hard to to, to read. It is after Manasseh's reign that God comes and says, I will wipe Israel out. You will be destroyed by Babylon after this wickedness has gone forth. He uh, puts up pagan altars in the temple. In the Holy of Holies, puts up an altar to Baal, an altar to Asherah, fills the temple courtyards with temples, things that have been torn down, pagan altars that have been torn down, he rebuilds. He brings in omens and fortune tellers, brings in false pagan religions, and encourages the other the people of Israel to worship them. There's some kings that are judged because they themselves worship false gods, and then the, the nation thinks, oh, my king's doing it, I should do it too. Manasseh enforces it. In fact, we have this one description of innocent blood was shed during his reign, and it filled the city of Israel from wall to wall, and worst of all, offers his son as a burnt offering, as a pagan child sacrifice. That's Manasseh. He is the Hitler, the Stalin, the, the Putin, the Mao of Judah. Why is Matthew putting him in here in Jesus' resume? I, uh, this is true, uh, I, I like family tree stuff. I, always, I make sure to say that as much as possible so that you guys know where I rank on like the cool scale. Uh, and so one of my relatives, this is true, is Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde. If genealogies were still our resume and I was applying for a bank job, I'm not going to include the most recent, you know, notorious bank robber. What in the world is Matthew doing? He could have skipped over Manasseh, he skips over other kings, but he includes the worst of the worst. Quite simply, what Matthew is doing with these four women and this king is not just showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's showing who the Messiah has come 
to say this Messiah, this King of Kings is not going to be born in a golden crib surrounded by nobility, never to mess with the people on the streets, those lower of, or of lower status than him. Rather, this Messiah is coming for the outcast, for the shameful, for the prostitutes, for those whom the rest of society would have no dealing with because they're too unclean. That is who this Messiah has come for. If we are in a society that rejects, you know, we don't talk about Bruno. We certainly don't talk about incest in our family, right? We leave them out. Matthew is saying that is exactly who this Messiah is coming to save. It will be a huge newsflash to all in Israel expecting Rome to be wiped out when they see their Messiah going after they deem unworthy of their attention. Matthew, quite simply, is showing something that I think we all too often forget. There is no shame too great for this Savior. There is no shame too great for this Savior, the one who will say, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Those who are healthy have no need of a doctor. Those who are sick long for someone to come heal them. There is no one. It's as if Jesus is saying, there's no level of shame too great not to have you in my family. The one that society wouldn't even look at, Jesus says, those are my mother's. There's no level of shame too great that I wouldn't have you in my family. Those that the world shrieks back at as outcasts, Jesus says, that's why I came. He will be called a friend of sinners. He will say things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is why I have come. And then secondly, Matthew is showing there's no pit of evil too deep for this Savior. He's the Savior of the Manassehs. You cannot outsin this Savior. There's no disgusting, horrible, atrocious acts too great that the Savior would turn away and say, that's too much. You cannot outsin this Savior. He came to save sinners. And until you see that, you will not rightly see him. There's one group that we will see that misses him over and over and over and over again and are blind to who he is all throughout this gospel and it's those who think they need no savior. It's the self-righteous. It's those who are better than, those who would look down on and look at other sinners comparing to themselves and I thank you God that I'm not like this poor tax collector. It is those who will miss him those who think they need no savior, those who if they really knew themselves would know they are no better, that their best works are filthy rags before a holy God. Matthew is telling us at the very beginning in the resume before we even get into the narrative to see who he really is, you need to see who you really are because the gospel is not that you're saved by your great pedigree by your great resume. In fact, it's in spite of it. It's the reason he came, because of your shameful pedigree, is the reason why he came to save you in the first place. Alistair Begg, a well-known pastor, I heard in a sermon a few years ago, uh, talked about, there's this old question, if you were to die and go to heaven and the angel at the gate you know, asks, why should I let you in? What would you say? 
And Alistair said, if we respond to that question in the first person, you've immediately misunderstood the gospel. If you respond because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I worked hard enough, you've immediately misunderstood the gospel. The only proper response is in the third person, because he, because he lived the life that I should have lived but didn't live, he died the death, I should have died because he gave me the forgiveness I do not deserve based on that perfect life that he lived and he brought me to God to where I can say, that's my father. He's brought me into the family. He, he, he is the reason I'm here. If we respond in the first person, if we look to ourselves, we will miss the Messiah altogether. Matthew wants to make that very, very clear. So to the prideful in this room, to the ones who are quick to justify yourselves, the ones who are quick to look down, if only they were as good as you, if only they could get their act together like you did. Be careful as we go through Matthew because you might just miss your only hope. Know yourself, see who you really are, and then you will see who he really is. He came for you. You are just as wicked, though you may have not carried out the acts of Manasseh, you are just as wicked as Uriah's wife and Manasseh, and to the shameful, Jesus is the only person you can never say, you don't know what I've done. If you did, you'd be disgusted. He's the only person you can never say that to, and he's the only person who can say to you, I know everything you've ever done. I know every thought you've ever had, and that's why I came. Not for the healthy, but for sinners. He's the only one who you can't turn away from in shame. Your shame is why he has come. That is the genealogy of Matthew, who your savior is and who your savior came to save. Men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes like David, failures like David, Jew and Gentile. He's not bound by a people group. He's not bound by a gender. He's not bound by levels of righteousness. There's no such thing. He came for sinners. So as we look at him throughout these next however long we're in Matthew, See who he is and see who you are. And as you see who he is, let him fill every chamber of your heart with love. I read a sermon uh, this past week by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of New Affections. And he's basically just making this argument of there's two ways to rid yourself of love of the world. You can convince yourself that the world isn't worthy of your love, that it's gross, things like that. But, he says, nature hates a vacuum. So as soon as you reject something, you'll, you'll cling on to something else. There's only one way to actually rid yourself of sin, of love for sin, and that is to replace that love with a greater infinite affection in one person, Jesus Christ. The only way to truly rid your heart isn't by trying to pull something out, but rather by gazing at the God who is your Savior and letting his heart shove out any sin that would occupy a space it is not worthy of. So let us look at him. Let us not mold him into someone he is not. That is so cheap compared to who he really is. And as we gaze at him, let us trade our sin for salvation. Let us trade our weariness for rest. And let us trade our cheap, fleeting pleasures of the world for ultimate joy found alone in knowing him. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you that you sent your son, you sent this Messiah who didn't come because we just needed a little help, but came because there was no way for us to find our way back to you. We were lost and we liked that we were lost. It's not as if we were just scrambling around and needed someone to show us the right path. We were sprinting away from you. And yet by your infinite grace, you sent your son to overcome our sinful hearts and to bring us to rest. I pray that you would do that. Whether we're Christians or non-Christians, if we have never trusted in your son, I pray that those would see the folly of trusting yourself and loving the world and trusting in your own works and turn to your son. And for all of us who may trust in your son now, how easy it still is to look to our own works and to compare ourselves with others. Please rid us of that self-righteous wickedness and let us actually rest in your son, knowing that his perfect life is what we are measured by. That's how you see us. It's as if we lived the life that he lived because we're in Christ. I pray that that would be firm in our minds again every single week as we open this book. Thank you for your son. We pray that you would change our hearts by your spirit. In your son's name we pray, amen.